This is an audio sermon recorded at the Church of Christ at Johnson Mill in Fayetteville, Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth according to the New Testament. Come worship with us Sunday mornings at 1030 at 3801 Johnson Mill Boulevard. This morning I want to talk to you for just a little bit about God's work through the ordinary. You know, I think a lot of the time we look at ourselves and we don't see value in ourselves. And that's often because we're too busy comparing ourselves to other people. And so we set this standard by what other people do and how we see other people do different things. And so we think, you know, I'm not going to live up to that standard. And so we say, you know, I'm not valuable. I'm just ordinary. And we can do that, you know, not just in our everyday life, but also in our life as Christians and how we compare ourselves to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's something that I think we all struggle with at one point or another, but it's really difficult. It's difficult for us to find the right standard to hold ourselves up against. You know, I didn't plan to read this passage, but, you know, from our reading this morning, I think we find something really valuable that applies to this topic. Uh, Starting back in Matthew 23 and verse 8, it says, But be not ye called rabbi, for one is your master, even Christ, and all ye are brethren. And call no man your father upon the earth, for one is your father, which is in heaven. Neither be ye called masters, for one is your master, even Christ. But he that is greatest among you shall be your servant. And so looking at just this passage that we read this morning, we can see that it's not about being better than somebody else or being called father by your brothers and sisters in Christ, being called rabbi as the scribes and the Pharisees wanted to be. And we hold ourselves up to this standard and we want to be some authority, not just in everyday life, but in the church as well. And that's something that, you know, a lot of different people have struggled with. In fact, the apostles struggled with that. And when we look in Mark chapter 9, 34 through 45, we can see their desire for power. It says, But they held their peace, for by the way they had disputed among themselves, who should be the greatest? And he sat down and called the twelve, and saith unto them, If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all, and servant of all. So we have this standard that we set for ourselves, and it's all based on our own opinions And it's all based on the standard of other people. And that's what the apostles had done. They were asking, who's going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And they all wanted to be that. They all wanted to be the best of all the 12 apostles and really all the followers of Christ. They wanted to be the best in his kingdom. And that's because they were comparing themselves to other people. And Christ told them, if you want to be first, if you're trying to be better than everybody else, you're going to be last in my kingdom. Because if you're too busy focusing on being better than somebody else, you're not going to be productive. And so he says, the same shall be last of all and servant of all. And we'll see that continue to come into play as we go throughout the rest of this study. In Matthew chapter 20, 25 through 28, Christ described this same type of thing in more detail. It says, but Jesus called them unto him, also speaking about the twelve apostles, and he said... Ye know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, and they that are great exercise authority upon them. But it shall not be so among you. But whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give his life a ransom for many. So here Jesus was talking about what actually provides value in his kingdom. And the apostles, again, were wanting to be the best. They were wanting to be the greatest in his kingdom. And he says, you know, the one who ministers, the one who serves, that's the one that's the best 
in my kingdom. They're the ones who are the most effective in my kingdom. And again, we're going to continue to see that through a couple of different examples that we're going to study this morning, where we see ordinary people doing huge things for God. But before we do that, I want to look at a couple more passages that talk about our really just our partiality toward other people. And this is something that is very closely coupled to trying to be better than other people. When we try to be the, the better people, we try to put others down as well to make ourselves feel even better. In James chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, it talks about respect of persons or partiality. It says, My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. For if there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring and goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment. And ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand thou there, or sit here under my footstool. Are ye not then partial in yourselves, and are become judges of evil thoughts? So I mentioned at the beginning of our study that a lot of the time when we look at ourselves, we say, I'm not as good as other people. That can go the other way too. We can say, I'm better than other people, because all these other people, you know, this poor man with these the vile raiment, as it says in this passage, the, the clothes that don't look good, the appearance of poverty. I'm better than that guy. You need to go sit in the corner or sit under my footstool. And then we look at this individual with the, the bright, colorful clothing, the one that looks wealthy, and say, you can have a good place in apparently what was their church services. And they were having issues with that in the church congregation of partiality or respect of persons. Matthew 9 and verse 11 shows us the same thing from the Pharisees. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto his disciples, Why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? So the Pharisees looked at Christ and said, Why are you eating and why are you spending time with people that are less? Why are you spending time with what they called publicans and sinners? The publicans were tax collectors, and often they were Jews who had started working for the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire was the Jews' greatest enemy, and they hated the Romans. And so when one of their family members, one of the, the Jews, started working for the Romans, they hated them. So these publicans or tax collectors were on the bottom of their society. And they also looked at other people and said, why are you eating with sinners? Now my first question when I hear them talking about sinners is how dare you call somebody else a sinner as if you're not a sinner yourself? We've all sinned, and we all know that. But the Pharisees looked at others as worse sinners than themselves. And so this really sets the stage for the rest of our study this morning, seeing how we often gauge ourselves in terms of what other people do. And we set this standard of what mankind thinks that we should be. But we're going to look at two examples this morning that show the opposite of how extremely ordinary people, people that seemed like they're on the bottom, they're, they're like these people that the Pharisees are describing here, could accomplish huge things for God. I want to start with the story of David. And we're going to look at a couple of different passages about how people viewed him and about how people looked at him as being ordinary and then see the things that he did accomplish for God. Starting in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 11 through 13. So at this point in the story, uh, the, the first king, Saul, had basically fallen from his power. He had stopped serving God, so God told Samuel, go find another king. And he said, find him out of the house of Jesse. And we see what happened in this story. In verse 11, it says, And Samuel said unto Jesse, Are here all thy children? And he said, There remaineth yet the youngest, and behold, he keepeth the sheep. And Samuel said unto Jesse, Send and fetch him, for we will not sit down till he come hither. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and withal of a beautiful countenance, and goodly to look on. 
And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brethren, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. So Samuel here had come to the house of Jesse to anoint a new king, to replace Saul. And so basically Jesse brings out his sons so that Samuel can look at them and see which one is going to be the new king. And God was going to tell Samuel which one was going to be the new king. And so he comes to the eldest just slightly before this passage that we read. Samuel comes to the eldest and says, this is a man of war. This is a strong man. This is a powerful man. Surely this is the king. And God told Samuel, I'm not looking at the outside. I'm not looking at how strong they are, whether they look like they're going to fit a kingly role. I look at the heart. And that's what God does. He sees things different than we do. He doesn't hold us to the standard that we set for ourselves against other people. He looks at our hearts individually and not in comparison with others. But then Samuel looks through all of Jesse's sons and God has not told him that one of them is the king. And so he looks through all of these sons and says, are all of your sons here? And Jesse says, well, you know, there's one more, but he's out feeding the sheep. And I mean, I guess if you want to, I can call him, but He's not really, he doesn't really fit the criteria for a king. Jesse looked at his own son and left him out feeding the sheep while he brought all his other sons in for Samuel to see if they were the right person to be the king. Even Jesse looked at his son David and said, David doesn't have potential. David can't lead a nation. He needs to be out feeding the sheep. And that's how a lot of the time people look at one another and compare one another to this standard. Now we see here in this passage that God, as he looked at the heart and he looked at the heart of David, he said, he's the one, go anoint him. So aside from uh, David's father, Jesse, aside from his opinion, aside from everyone else's opinion about David and about how he couldn't fill this role of being a king, God said he's the one and anointed him as the next king. And we'll see as we continue looking at the story of David how he filled those shoes that he was placed in. He filled that potential that he had. In 1 Samuel chapter 17 and 28, uh, Jesse had told David to go out to the battlefield. David's older brothers were fighting for Saul because Saul was still in place as the king. And so uh, David goes out to bring his brothers food and to check on them and bring back a report to Jesse about how they were doing. And we see Eliab's response, David's oldest brother, here in this passage. Verse 28, it says, And Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spake unto the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why camest thou down hither? And with whom hast thou left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know thy pride and the naughtiness of thine heart, for thou art come down that thou mightest see the battle. So David's older brothers were out there fighting for Saul. They were men of war, and people saw them to have potential. And so they were out there fighting for Saul, but Goliath had come out and all the Israelite soldiers were just sitting in their tents because they didn't know what to do. None of them were willing to fight Goliath. He was a nine foot tall giant. Of course, they're not going to want to fight him. And David comes out to bring his brothers food and to check on them and make sure they're doing all right. And he comes up and Eliab says, I know your pride and the naughtiness of your heart. He was bringing his brothers food. He was helping them. And that's still Eliab's response to him. I know your pride. When David was just serving. And also David at this point 
he had asked the soldiers of Israel, the army of Israel, why they weren't fighting, why they were just sitting in their tents and not facing the Philistines. And this is this point that Eliab responds in this way. Eliab doubted David, and he doubted David's intentions for what he did. But he wasn't the only one. With, this, with Goliath facing the armies of Israel, David sees that and says, you know, if none of you are going to go out and fight Goliath, I will. I'll go out and fight Goliath because God's with me. And Saul caught wind of that, the king. And we see his response and his doubt of David as well in 1 Samuel 17, 32 through 33. It says, And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Thy servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Thou art not able to go against this Philistine, to fight with him. For thou art but a youth, and he a man of war from his youth. Look at how Saul compared David to Goliath. And there was definitely a comparison in our eyes to be made. A young man, apparently by the descriptions we have of him, a relatively small man compared to a nine-foot-tall giant who had been fighting for all his life. So pretty much we're looking at a youth and a man of war that had been fighting from the point that he was David's age. And so Saul looks at that and he says, you're not able, you can't go up against the Philistine, you can't go fight Goliath. You don't have potential. So at every point in this story, we have people questioning David. David's own father, Jesse, left him in the field keeping the sheep. He wasn't the material for a king. He comes out to his brothers in the battlefield and asks why they're not going out and fighting against Goliath. And Eliab says, where have you left your father's sheep? He wanted him back feeding the sheep too. And he goes before Saul and Saul says, you're not able to do the things that you want to do. You don't have the potential. He's not worthy to be a king. He's not worthy to be in battle. He's not worthy to take the opportunity that he wants to take to fight Goliath. And that's how everyone sees him up until the point that he's victorious over Goliath in 1 Samuel 17, verses 48 through 49. And it came to pass when the Philistine arose, speaking of Goliath, and came and drew nigh to meet David, that David hasted and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took thence a stone and slang it, and smote the Philistine in his forehead, that the stone sunk into his forehead, and he fell upon his face to the earth. So here David goes out against Goliath, and David has a sling and a stone. And Goliath was a well-armed man. He, he had armor, he had weapons, he had a sword, a shield, a spear. He had all kinds of different things to his advantage, aside from the fact that he was nine feet tall. And so we're looking at an incredible difference between David and Goliath in this battle here. But still, David slings the stone at Goliath, and it sinks into his forehead, and he falls face down on the ground. And David killed Goliath that day for the glory of God. What was his purpose in that, and where was his focus? Let's go back just a couple of verses to verses 45 through 46, where we see what his purpose was, and how he focused on God rather than on himself. Here David was preparing to go and fight against Goliath. And then said David to the Philistine, Thou comest to me with a sword and with a spear and with a shield. But I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defied. This day will the Lord deliver thee into mine hand, and I will smite thee and take thine head from thee. And I will give the carcass, carcasses of the host of the Philistines this day unto the fowls of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. 
was David concerned about the fact that he was so much smaller than Goliath? Was he concerned about the fact that all he had was a sling and stones? Was he concerned about the fact that everyone doubted him? I know that's something that can stop me at times, and I'm sure affects a lot of different people as well. When you're, you know, aspiring to do something, and then someone says, you know, I don't really think that's within your potential. That's going to be really difficult for you because of some, you know, side effects, something that you struggle with. And a lot of time that makes a lot of people want to quit. But did David care that people doubted him? It didn't make any difference because David could still see not his potential, but God's ability to be victorious in this battle. David couldn't have defeated Goliath. All the odds were against him. But he said, this day will the Lord deliver you into my hand. And he didn't go out and say, I'm going to defeat you. God's going to defeat you. And then at the end of this passage, he says that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. David's whole purpose in fighting Goliath was to glorify God, to show the nations around him that there was a God in Israel. And so his whole purpose was not to glorify himself or to capitalize on his potential, but rather to do what he could through the power of God. And we can do the same. God is powerful, and he's willing to help those who put their trust in him and do what they do to glorify him. And I'm not saying that we can go out and fight physical battles and God's going to conquer giants for us. But do you have giants in your life? Do you have different problems that you look at and say, I can't conquer this and all odds are against me? I know I do. And I look at some of the things that I face in life and say, I just don't have what it takes. But if we say, I don't have what it takes, but God does have what it takes. And we say, I can do this through God's strength. He will help us. And if we put our trust in him and focus on him and glorify him, we can fight our giants because we've all got giants. We've all got huge problems that we need to face. And with trust in God, we can face them. And we can win, just as David did against Goliath. An ordinary man, wasn't he? In the sight of all those around him. And he accomplished this great victory for the Lord. I want to look at a second story in the scripture that's not so much just one individual who was ordinary and accomplished big things for God, but rather the story of one very important individual and several around him that were unimportant, that were ordinary, that were able to help him through something that he was facing. And this is the story of Naaman. Let's look at 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, where it kind of shows us who Naaman was and the problem that he was facing. In 2 Kings chapter 5, 1 through 3, it says, Now Naaman, captain of the host of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master, and honorable, because by him the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. He was also a mighty man in valor, but he was a leper. And the Syrians had gone out by companies and had brought away captive out of the land of Israel a little maid, and she waited on Naaman's wife. And she said unto her mistress, Would God my Lord were with the prophet that is in Samaria, for he would recover him of his leprosy. Now let's go back to the beginning of this passage and see really who Naaman was. Naaman was captain of the host of the king of Assyria. A great man, an honorable man, a mighty man. So we see all of these things going for Naaman. He had a lot of power, he had a lot of potential, he was a man of war and he had conquered these different nations around him. He was important. He was extraordinary. 
but he had one thing against him. He was a leper. Basically, his flesh was slowly decaying, and there was no cure for this disease at this point in history. No cure. And so all of his power, all of his ability in battle, all of the things he had accomplished came back to the fact that he was a leper and he was slowly dying and couldn't stop it. So was he a powerful man against this disease? He accomplished a lot of other things, but he was helpless and he was dying. And then this little maid from Israel who waited on his wife, a servant, says, you know what? If Naaman could go to Israel and find a man there, he would heal him of his leprosy. He would heal him of this incurable disease. And so a little servant told Naaman what he needed to do. Why would he listen to her? He was an important man, and she was just a little servant. Not even his servant, his wife's servant. She was pretty much the most unimportant person in his household. So why would he listen? Naaman was desperate. He had no chance. He was slowly falling apart. And so he followed her. And if we look in 2 Kings 5, verse 9 through 10, we see that he did travel to Israel to see if this, if this man could truly heal his leprosy. Verse 9 says, So Naaman came with his horses and with his chariot and stood at the door of the house of Elisha. And Elisha sent a messenger unto him, saying, Go and wash in Jordan seven times, and thy flesh shall come again to thee, and thou shalt be clean. So Naaman actually did what this little servant told him to do. So he goes to Israel, and he finds the house of Elisha. And he goes up expecting Elisha to come out and do something incredible. He said, I thought that he would come out and touch the place and just make it suddenly vanish, make my leprosy suddenly cure itself. I thought he would, maybe he thought he was going to come out and speak some weird words and make some hand motions and make his leprosy disappear. I don't know what he was expecting, but he was expecting something that we would call extraordinary. And what did he get? A messenger came out of the door. A servant. Someone that he would deem very unimportant and very ordinary. And that servant is the one that delivered to him what he needed to do. Go down to the Jordan River and dip seven times. Well, you know, the Jordan was also an ordinary river. And Naaman looked at this ordinary river and says, why would I go wash in the Jordan when there's better waters, clearer waters in Damascus? Why would I go wash in the Jordan? I don't know about you, but when I look at this picture, I say, you know, when the water comes out of the shower spigot, I want it to look absolutely nothing like that. It wasn't good enough to take a bath in. And so Naaman says, if I can't take a bath in this and be clean, how is it going to wash away an incurable disease? Well, who convinced him otherwise? Verse 13, and his servants came near and spake unto him and said, My father, if the prophet had bid thee do some great thing, wouldst thou not have done it? How much rather than when he saith to thee, Wash and be clean? Then went he down and dipped himself seven times in Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God. And his flesh came again like unto the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Naaman was furious. He didn't want to do what this messenger from Elisha had told him to do. The Jordan was nasty. And besides, this was something very ordinary, something very unimportant. Why would he follow this messenger's advice for him? But his servants say, you know, if he had asked you to do something incredible, if he'd asked you to do something that you deemed important enough for your social status, you would have done it. 
So why not when he says, go dip in the Jordan, why not just do it? And Naaman did, and he was healed from what at that point in history was an incurable disease. At every point of his path to healing, there were servants, very simple people. The little servant girl in his household, the servant of Elisha and his servants are the ones who made him able to receive healing through the power of God. And you know, when I look back at this story, a lot of the time I wonder whether I, as an unimportant person, would be able to do what the servants in this story did. For example, the little servant girl, who was she to even talk to Naaman? Who was she to offer advice to him? And a lot of the time I, I look at this story and I compare it to teaching the gospel, teaching the word of God. And we look at ourselves and say, you know, this person probably isn't going to listen to me. This person probably doesn't care what I have to say. And she was unimportant and went to possibly the most important man in Syria and said, here's what you can do to be healed. She trusted in the power of God and in the power of the message that she had to tell him rather than in the power of herself. And we can do the same. In this story, just as in the story of David, there are unimportant people, ordinary people who accomplished massive things for God and helped people in ways that we could never expect. And there are many stories like this in the, in the scriptures. There's the story of Gideon. He was a poor, family, uh, a poor farmer in a poor family in the nation of Israel that was oppressed on all sides by the nations around them. Basically, he was hiding their crops so that they wouldn't get stolen. An ordinary man. And he delivered the nation of Israel from those oppressors with pitchers and trumpets. He was able to accomplish great things for God. Rahab was a harlot, a woman who would be seen as having ill repute of the city of Jericho that was going to be destroyed. She was doomed just like Naaman was. But she, because she helped the spies from Israel, was able to escape the destruction of Jericho. Jacob was the younger son in a nomadic family, and he liked domestic, domestic tasks. So if they looked at him, they would say, this kid's not manly. I mean, that was really the type of reputation that he probably had. And also, as the younger son, the older son was supposed to receive all of the different blessings and all of the different promises that were passed down through the family. But Jacob became the father of the nation of Israel, and his name was later changed to Israel as the namesake of that nation, the father of God's people, Saul of Tarsus, persecuted the church, killed countless Christians, and became an apostle and wrote the majority of the New Testament. So we're talking about people that everyone would look at and say they had no potential. Do we have potential? We may think that we don't, but that's because we're holding ourselves up to the wrong standard. And God has a very simple standard for us. Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 13 says, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Are we unimportant? We may see ourselves that way. We may see ourselves as not having enough potential to accomplish things for God. But that's when we're holding ourselves up to the standard that other people set for us or that we set, our, set for ourselves based on other people. God has a simple standard to fear Him and respect Him and obey Him. And that is all it takes. We as Christians only have to serve 
Who's greatest in the kingdom of heaven? It's the servant. It's the minister. We have a simple standard from God. Why not just follow it? Instead of setting unattainable standards for ourselves. God's given his standard. Why not follow it this morning? We hope you enjoyed this teaching from God's Word. To receive new sermons each week, subscribe on Google Play Music, iTunes, Spotify, and like us on Facebook. Thanks for listening, and God bless.